Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Major depressive disorder is common, costly, and all too often a tragic cause of suicide. While current antidepressants, such as SSRIs, are effective in two-thirds of patients, they typically require four to eight weeks to show evidence of efficacy. Too slow for suffering patients. Yeah, my name's Scott Thompson. I'm the chair of the Department of Physiology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. I am an electrophysiologist by training. Scott's research is focused on understanding what goes wrong in the brain in patients suffering from depression and using that knowledge to identify new, faster-acting therapeutic strategies for treatment. In February of 2020, Professor Scott Thompson was a special guest of the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, University of Melbourne. He took some time out for a chat about his work with Dr Andy Horvath. Professor Scott, what does an electrophysiologist do? Electrophysiologists use the electrical activity of nerve cells. They are excitable cells in the brain, uh, and they use electrical and chemical communication to do their tasks. So uh, our, our job is to stick electrodes in or near the cells and record their electrical activity by way of eavesdropping on their function. Eavesdropping, that's what we like to do too. So what do you eavesdrop on? Yeah, so our, our, our research is focused on the, uh, the neurobiology of depression, what goes wrong in the brain when there is uh, a case of depression, and we would like to use that knowledge to uh, offer up ideas for better, more effective, faster-acting antidepressant drug treatments. So tell us about antidepressants. We're familiar with the SSRIs that came out in the 1980s. What's next? Right. So the SSRIs have been fantastic. They are effective in about two-thirds of patients with depression, uh, just absolutely uh, life-changing for those patients uh, in which they work. Uh, so with a fully a third of patients are, are not uh, responsive to SSRIs, such as Prozac. Uh, the other big issue with, with the SSRIs is that they take about six to eight weeks to begin to, uh, to alleviate the symptoms in patients with depression. Uh, that's, that's fantastic if, if it works, uh, but it's very problematic. You finally brought your loved one to the clinic, convinced them that they have a problem. The patient, the doctors, the families are working to pick the right SSRI. Not all patients are equally effective to all very of the drug. Uh, and then it takes six to eight weeks to, to find out that no, in fact, it, this drug at this concentration didn't work. So now we're going to change the concentration. We may change the drug another six to eight weeks, another six to eight weeks. So it really is a very slow process and very problematic. Define SSRI for us. How does it work? Right. So an SSRI is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Serotonin is one of the brain's hormones that works to exert control over the activity of large populations of neurons in particular brain regions. And the SSRIs act to uh, inhibit its uptake from the, the, the brain. So the serotonin is released by particular specialized nerve cells. It floats around, it binds to receptors, it does its job, and then it's taken up by other cells and, and inactivated. SSRIs, such as Prozac, inhibit that uptake process so the serotonin lasts longer in the brain and it builds up to a higher concentration. We've known about the SSRIs. They were first discovered in the 1980s. Uh, and, and we know about how they work. We've, the neurochemists, the medicinal chemists have managed to refine their chemical properties so that they're very potent, very effective, and have very few side effects. 
What we don't know nearly as much about is is why they work. What what is it about serotonin that uh, that uh, an elevation of serotonin will relieve the symptoms? And really, uh, our starting point was that we don't really know what is wrong in the brain with depression. If you don't know what's wrong, you don't know how to design a rational strategy for fixing it. The, the SSRIs, such as Prozac, were discovered accidentally. Uh, they were being uh, developed for treatment of problems with blood pressure. And lo and behold, uh, some patients reported that their mood was better. Uh, and that's really why we have them. It wasn't a rational design of somebody saying, oh, there's not enough serotonin. What could we do to raise the level of serotonin? So you've set out to find new alternatives to the SSRI. Where did you start? Right. So, so we were doing basic research on a fundamental property of the, of the structure of, of a neuron. And uh, uh, for reasons that are too complicated to go into, we decided to test whether serotonin would have any effect on this process. Uh, and when we did that, uh, we, we had uh, one of those uh, eureka moments. The, the process that we were interested in studying, I'm pretty sure wasn't affected at all, although I can't really remember, but our control response was affected. And so the serotonin had this ability to strengthen the communication between two nerve cells, in particular brain region. And that really had never been described before, so that's good. That, that gets scientists excited, obviously. Um, and so we were studying this ability of serotonin to strengthen communication between brain cells. We worked out the processes. And then we asked ourselves, well, would this have any bearing on why an SSRI acts to restore uh, behaviors in in our mice or in humans with depression. And that really sort of led us to formulate a hypothesis that the ability of Prozac and SSRIs to strengthen communication between brain cells would be a mechanism of action if, in fact, in depression, there was a weakening of that communication. Then one could imagine that an SSRI would act to restore normal transmission, and that would explain why it worked. And so we, we set out to test that hypothesis, the best way to do science. Uh, we took mice that had, were uh, displaying this anhedonic behavior. We brought them back to the lab, and then we asked about the strength of communication between brain cells in regions of the brain that we know are important for this sort of reward behavior, the places where things, where decisions are made about what is pleasurable and what is not at the heart of the symptoms of human depression. And what we found, in fact, was what we predicted, that communication between brain cells was weakened in these particular areas. And this is a finding that has been seen and confirmed uh, in lots of other groups and lots of other laboratories in the world. And so now we could put together what, what we call our, our working model, the, the thing that guides our research, that gives us a conceptual framework to think about depression. And that is that at least part of the symptoms of human depression are due to impaired communication between brain cells in these brain regions. SSRIs, and in fact, several other known antidepressant drugs that we have looked at in the laboratory act to restore this transmission in these brain regions. And so now we have a mechanism that makes sense also, right? It works biologically on a process that we know is important for the symptoms or the signs of, of human depression. With that as a background, then, uh, we, were, we were ending every paper and every grant proposal with the sentence, something to the effect of, uh, and this should lead to better antidepressant drugs. Uh, and so uh, I had two guys in my laboratory at that time, and, and I sort of challenged them with, with this. It's like, if we think we have this amazing, unique insight into what's wrong with the depression, 
why are we leaving it to other people to develop antidepressant drugs? Why don't we come up with an antidepressant drug candidate of our own? Uh, and so we did. We spent a lot of time thinking about it, talking about it. Um, and we decided, well, we were never going to make a better Prozac, right? Prozac has been refined through 40 years of medicinal chemistry. It is, it is as good as any SSRI will ever be. No side effects, potent at its target, perfect SSRI. And there are very many variations on the theme of Prozac. Too. There are. There, there's a lot of Me Tooism in drug development, and uh, there's a lot of Me Too's for Prozac. So we decided to uh, to instead try to make a better ketamine. So maybe maybe you know ketamine is a, uh, a has been around forever. It was developed as a anti. Um, isn't it was it developed a, as an anesthetic? Isn't um, it a horse tranquilizer? It is used as a horse tranquilizer. It has a lot of veterinary uh, uses. It's also used in patients, uh, human patients. So uh, kids in particular uh, often get ketamine as their anesthetic of choice. It's it's fast acting. It's potent, uh, and it's safe. So uh, around uh, 20 or so years ago, it was, again, sort of uh, serendipitously discovered that ketamine exerted a rapid antidepressant action. So whereas a Prozac takes six to eight weeks to work, within a matter of a few hours, depressed patients given ketamine report an improvement in their mood and in their symptoms. A single administration of ketamine produces an improvement in mood that lasts in most people's hands between uh, a week and two weeks. Um, and so that's that's great. That's really good. That was revolutionary for thinking about uh, depression, right? If a, if a drug takes six to eight weeks to work, then you tend to think of a biological process that's very slow, maybe changes in, in gene expression. You really have to get in there, make new proteins, plug them into the right place. Those are processes that just take time. But when a drug like ketamine can come along and work in a matter of, of hours, then you really have to think of a different a different process. Yeah. Where can I get some? Yeah. Well, now uh, in the U.S., you can because Johnson & Johnson took ketamine, which has been around forever. It's off patent. It's a generic. costs about 20 cents for a dose. Is it administered by nasal spray? Is that right? Yes. So Johnson & Johnson came up with a way to formulate ketamine in a way that it could be administered in a nasal spray. That's great uh, because that allows psychiatrists to deliver it uh, in an, an office setting, not in a hospitalized setting. And so that will increase access and hopefully lower costs as well. So ketamine is great. It has this rapid antidepressant action, but it comes with its own set of problems. It's it's a, a an anesthetic, right? It'll knock you out if you take too much. It also produces a, uh, a sort of a para-hallucinatory effect called a dissociative effect, right? And so uh, if you've heard of ketamine, probably what you've heard of is that kids take it to be able to stay up and dance all night in, uh, in raves and things like that. So uh, it has some uh, halluc- mildly hallucinatory effects that people find pleasurable. Uh, and so like all drugs that people find pleasurable, it's then subject to abuse and uh, an habitual uh, problems. So, so ketamine has this amazing action, but it has a host of, of side effects that will complicate its widespread use and complicate its, its general applicability. When you were in the lab deciding things to test on your mice, how is it that you came to choose ketamine? So when we, when we decided we were going to try and come up with a better antidepressant compound, Prozac, well-known, well-characterized, but slowly acting. We wanted something that would be fast. So we decided to model our efforts uh, in trying to create something that would work as quickly as ketamine, but not carry its side effects. Did you try other molecules? So we tried a a different class of compounds. And so, uh, again, sort of trying to think of how ketamine works. The idea is that you're having this mildly dissociative uh, hallucinatory response because ketamine has this mildly hallucinatory effect, and it does 
that because it activates cells throughout your brain. And so we decided that really what you want then is a drug that activates cells like ketamine does, but doesn't do it everywhere in the brain. And so we came up with a class of molecules that would target particular structures really limited to the brain's reward circuitry. In rats and mice, these drugs are silver bullets. Just like we had hoped, they exert this rapid antidepressant-like action in rats and mice that are displaying this anhedonic phenotype. No side effects that we could see with all the sorts of tests that reveal the side effects of ketamine. So in our hands, this is a ketamine-like rapid antidepressant novel candidate without the side effects. This is a little bit reminiscent of the Timothy Leary LSD movement that suggested hallucinogens were actually good for your brain. How do these hallucinogenics affect serotonin? It turns out there are 14 different receptor molecules for this neurotransmitter serotonin, which is the the target of the SSRI, such as Prozac. Hallucinogenic drugs like psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, all of these compounds are potent activators of all 14 of these receptors. Through our work studying SSRIs and how they strengthen communication in brain cells, we know a few of those that are really seem to be essential to that antidepressant response. Turns out we also know the receptor that is critical for the hallucination that is produced by psilocybin and LSD, and that is the 5-HT2 receptor. We don't think the 5-HT2 receptor is necessary for the antidepressant response, hence our taking the fun out of psilocybin. We think it should be possible to block the hallucinations and retain the rapid antidepressant response. This is an experiment that's been done in people already. We know that you can give psilocybin in combination with a compound that blocks this one critical receptor. Those people do not hallucinate anymore in response to psilocybin. That's good. We have the means to do this. We know that psilocybin produces an antidepressant response in depressed people. That's good. And now there are groups that are working to test this anti-hallucination in combination with psilocybin in patients. In my laboratory, we are currently performing these experiments in mice in hopes of producing some evidence that will encourage these efforts in people. We're very excited about this because if we could block the hallucinations, it would greatly increase the ability to use a compound like psilocybin by making it more available. You wouldn't need to come spend all day in the clinic. We wouldn't have to worry about how you're going to drive home while you're seeing pink elephants walking down the sidewalk. So you're making a socially and family-friendly antidepressant. Yes. That works fast. Hopefully. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, what surprised you about this research? It's always surprising to a scientist when your hypothesis that you start with actually works out. I think it's most of us would say more likely it it fails somewhere along the way. So uh, the surprising thing is that so far, so good. What misconceptions do we encounter from scientists or the public? I don't know if I would call this a misconception, but certainly it's a limitation, is uh, the, the making that, that giant leap from, from a mouse to a, to a human being. Uh, mice are not small, fuzzy humans. Human psychiatry, human psychology, way more complicated than mouse psychology. So uh, it's always a bit of a, a leap of faith to take something that works in mice and, and ask whether it will work in people. So with our novel antidepressant compounds, we are now currently trying to raise the money to get the approval to do that kind of work in patients. We would have to prove that our compounds are safe in people before they can be administered in depressed patients to find out if they are, in fact, effective. 
What is the relationship between stress, anxiety and depression? Stress is one of the biggest known predictors of who will become depressed. We know that that the sensitivity to stress is partly determined by genetic background. You may experience the same stress that I experience. I will get depressed. You won't. There's a lot that we don't know about that. It's very complicated. Obviously, there's no single factor that one can identify. But but many, many studies, time after time, have shown that the more stressful life events you experience, losing a job, losing a loved one, uh, the more likely you are to become depressed. In fact, and it the is most, a genuine brain effect that you've seen in mice. I think a common misconception, you asked about misconceptions. I think a common misconception is that, that uh, depression is, is, is a, a sign of bad character, right? It's one of the more hopeful uh, aspects of, of life uh, today, and we need all the hopeful signs we can have, uh, is that the stigma of mental illness is slowly beginning to be erased, and that is an incredibly hopeful sign. If your child has a flu, you don't hesitate to ask your friends who's treating them, what drugs are they taking, how's that going, how are you dealing with it. But if you have a loved one, a, ch- a child, a family member who's experiencing depression, we all uh, experience this reluctance to to come forward and, and ask our friends and rely on our friends to give us advice, give us support. That stigma of, of mental health as a character flaw keeps people from seeking treatment. It leads patients to spend years locked in a closet denying to their, their loved ones and their friends that they are, in fact, experiencing depression. I hope that this stigma is gradually going away and that we can all come together as a community to support those of us with afflicted. You wouldn't suffer in silence with a flu. You would reach out for help, and that's what we need for mental health. We all get colds, we all get sad, and sometimes we all get a bit too sad. Professor Scott, how do you make a mouse depressed? Uh, That's a great question. Um, There's a a variety of, of models that we use. We know that stress is one of the uh, most important epidemiological predictors for human depression, those uh, people who suffer uh, stressful life events, loss of a loved one, loss of a job. In the U.S., we have to worry about losing our medical insurance. Those kinds of things can really uh, push people over the deep end and in, into true clinical depression. All of the mouse models that people use are based on producing chronic stress in animals. There are different ways to do it. Uh, the most common ones, I think, are a little bit like your life and my life, right? Every day in the morning, in the afternoon, something happens that's just annoying and stressful. It's not life-threatening, but it's just annoying. And if that happens to you day after day after day, you may experience depression. So that's kind of what we try to, to do in the laboratory. We bring the mice down to the lab uh, for, for 30 minutes or so every day, day after day for about three weeks, and subject them to, to something that's stressful. Not life-threatening stress, but annoying stress. We take them out of a cage with their friends, and we put them out of a, in a cage with a bunch of strange mice they've never seen before. We make them stand around in wet cage bedding. We subject them to strobe lights, to loud noise, to uh, a quick dunk in a bath of cold water. Again, it's not stressful. They don't fear for their lives. But again, every day they know they're going to get brought down to the laboratory and those mean scientists are going to do something to them that they really don't like. If you do that for three weeks every day in a row, you end up with a mouse then that displays this anhedonic phenotype that we talked about before, this behavioral change that persists. You, you, You do three weeks of chronic stress and that loss of ability to respond to rewarding stimuli will persist for weeks afterwards. That's one model. Another one we use is kind of the grade school model of depression, I like to think of it. Um, 
Uh, you may remember the, the bad bully in grade school who uh, stole your lunch and kicked you and tripped you on the playground and all that sort of stuff. So uh, we, we take a mouse and we put it in a cage with a big bad bully. The big bad bully beats up our, our, uh, our test mouse and we make, them, we make the test mouse stay in the cage with the bully, separated so he's not physically harmed, but stay in the cage with the bully for, for uh, several hours. You do that again day after day after day for about two or three weeks and you end up with a mouse that also loses its ability to respond to rewarding stimuli. I didn't know there were bully mice. There are. <laughs> they're, mice are very social, but uh, but they're also animals. Right. So there's an alpha mouse. Animals. They're animals. They're animals. <laughs> Professor Scott, leave us with a shareable idea. Next time we're popping an antidepressant, what would you like us to think about? I guess a shareable idea I'd like to leave you, leave everybody with is, is that, uh, that mental health is a sickness. It's not just a character flaw. It's not your mind. It's actually your brain. It is no different than any other medical condition. There is something physically wrong with the cells in your brain. And so you are not to suffer alone. You are to seek help for that just like you would for any other mental condition. Uh, and, and know that help is on the way. There are drugs that will work for almost everybody with depression. It may take a while to find the right drug, but you will get better. Professor Scott Thompson, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you to Scott Thompson, Professor and Chair of the Department of Physiology and Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on February 12, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.